Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio I know we had some words last time But that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders Network Featuring tales to terrify And far-fetched fables I don't get Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 605. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, indeedy. Yes, 605. And guess what the weather is like? Miserable. Totally miserable. But we have a cracking story. And it is the end of the month. So we have Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So, a big hit first of all, mind you, Patreon. We are kind of going down a steep incline on people supporting the show. If you can, listen, just support where, you know what I mean? Just like a, a little donation each month. Come over to the site, front of the site, just there. You get the actual show a day early without any adverts in. There you go. How cool is that, man? So, please, that would be fantastic. So the main fiction is A Substitute for Salvation by Chad Gale. I will give you a little heads up about Chad. And if you can hear noises in the background, that's Douglas, me pointer, who's snoring his head off here. So anyway, Chad's science fiction has appeared in 365 Tomorrows and Perillion SF. In addition to Toiling... As an English agent in several small colleges, Chad has did a brief stint at a poetry magazine before he moved to New York, where he ran a photography studio next to Times Square. His photographic work has been published in the New York Times and the Huffington Post, and his novel, Let It Be, which is tied to the music of the Beatles, is available everywhere. 
This story is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who is slightly, or who is just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He's previously recorded for Farfetch Fables and The Cursed Inn, and you can find him, and there's a little link there on Twitter as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud present. A Substitute for Salvation by Chad Gale The window at the end of the landing was smashed. Mick looked down at the smuggler who was sprawled at his feet. He didn't need to check the club's security feed to know what had happened. A clone haggling with the smuggler for safe passage had gone berserk, shot the smuggler with his own gun, and had escaped through the window. It was a safe bet that the clone was hiding in the ravine that unrolled from the back of the moonlit hill that braced the club's rear exit, but Mick wasn't going after the murderer. He picked up the gun, wedged it behind his belt, and leaned against the banister, surveying the floor below. It was slow for a Friday night. A few couples, locals with money to burn, were dancing half-heartedly to the music playing in their heads while an underage Series D made a play for one of the regulars. He noticed three Series B clones slouched against the bar. Curling his fingers, Mick launched a small screen from his wristband. The image on the screen seemed to sag under the weight of the Marshal's drooping jowls. The Marshal's blunt voice streamed into the audio implant behind Mick's ear. Another killing at the apocalypse, the Marshal growled. This one wasn't a clone, Mick said. And you think that's an improvement? The marshal policed 200 square miles of the territory once known as New Mexico. He was part of the government remnant that had survived the war, a corrupt official who subsisted on bribes and kickbacks while the company ran the real show. But Mick had to deal with him because of the company's clones. The ones on hold came to his club, the Apocalypse, to gamble and get stoned. The ones whose numbers had been called who were heading north to catch the next flight to the moon or to Mars, came to get laid by one of Mick's sex droids. When they drank too much, hurt themselves or someone else, or damaged one of the droids, the marshal was ready to lend a helping hand, if the price was right. What'll it cost? Mick asked. Twenty-five thousand. Mick held his breath. He knew better than to get angry. It was ten last time, he said. He's got to die somewhere else. It won't be easy to cover up. I can do ten now, the rest when you finish the job. Okay. Send a service droid over with the body. Mick flicked his wristband, killing the screen. He had locked the smuggler's gun in his desk for safekeeping. In the same drawer where he kept the neural scrambler he'd confiscated last year. There were nights, not unlike this one, where he'd toyed with the idea of using the illegal scrambler on himself, although he would have erased more than a few days or weeks' worth of memories. Twenty to twenty-five years, that'd be more like it. Near the entrance to the club, a droid and a clone were circling through the security loop. When he looked more closely at the droid, a split second of confusion reigned in his head and he pushed himself back from the banister, shocked by the feeling of vertigo. He knew the droid. It was Ursa-12. 
a sex droid who'd saved his life in New York. She was walking hand in hand with a clone, a Series D. Mick was in Poughkeepsie when the bombs fell, 17 low-yield nuclear warheads that incinerated the only cities that mattered. He'd taken a leave of absence from his startup to give his wife some time to think about an idiotic affair he'd had and he'd been apart from Inga for two weeks when one of those seventeen bombs exploded above Manhattan, vaporizing the towers that pierced the sky. The next morning, he marched for thirty miles against the thickening tide of refugees to cross the blackened, boiling waters of the East River at dusk in a ferry that limped toward Brooklyn. In the crowded streets, manually operated vehicles moved along at a crawl, their headlights illuminating the carcasses of crashed drones and disabled bots while men, women, and children scurried in and out of the stores and bodegas, their arms loaded with whatever food and clothes they could carry. To the west, pillars of fire burned behind the dense smog of soot and smoke, a pungent shroud of charred remains that covered the city like a black fog. Most of the structures in his neighborhood were still standing, including mixed building, the walk-up where he'd lived with his wife for five years. The mess the looters had left behind told him nothing except that she wasn't there, so he spent the night in his closet, barricaded behind a door he nailed shut from the inside. The next day, he combed through the parade of lost souls, searching for the only face that mattered. But by that afternoon, he'd traded the once-familiar street corners for the triage centers that had been erected suddenly in vacant lots. Pacing the length of each tent, he scanned the cots occupied by the wounded with the same errant hope, praying that somehow, by some kind of miracle, Inga might have wound up here. But he knew he wouldn't find her. She worked in Manhattan, and she'd been in Manhattan when the bombs fell. Days later, while he was wandering through the wasteland of the burrow he'd called home, he was attacked by a gang of teens who nearly killed him. Badly beaten and bleeding, he somehow backtracked to the last hospital he'd visited, a windowless warehouse where electric lanterns cast tendrils of blue-white light across the endless rows of the sick and the dying. A droid helped him to his feet when he collapsed on the concrete floor. A sex droid with silky blonde hair and sparkling blue eyes, who'd been retooled to perform minor surgery and palliative care. Her name was Ursa Twelve, but Mick didn't call her that, even at the beginning. To him, she was Inga, even though he knew that his Inga was gone. While he was bedridden, Mick reminisced with the droid, telling her about the things he and his wife liked to do together and the places they liked to go. After a week of this, the droid had collected enough information about Inga to respond as Inga would she molded herself into the thing that would help him heal. At night they shared a narrow cot together, and he made love to her in the dark while the generators hummed and the survivors surrounding them cried themselves to sleep. Whispering his wife's name in her ear over and over again, he told himself that a part of Inga had been reborn in the mind of the droid, and this small comfort gave him a reason to survive. At the end of the month, a grim-looking doctor recommended that he be released. As he boarded a commercial hopper bound for the untouched wilds of New Jersey, Mick realized that he didn't want to go. 
He was in love with what Ursa had become. It wasn't the same kind of love he'd felt for his wife, but it seemed just as real. Mick started down the suspended stairs. Ursa, or Inga, which was what he wanted to call her, was standing alone near the bar, watching a couple dance to music she wasn't tuned to while colorful holograms dripped from the club's ceiling, lighting up her perfect face. Mick had thought of her often, and he'd even tried to track her down once, driven by the hope that she hadn't been reprogrammed during the decade of recovery that witnessed the rise of the company and the corresponding dawn of its patented clones. But he didn't think that, now, she would recognize him. Hello, Mick. A bright smile graced her red lips, which had faded a little in the intervening years. Her skin had also hardened some, especially around her neck, and he sensed some stiffness in her joints as he cupped her elbows to draw her close. She seemed just as beautiful, however, as she'd been the day he left Brooklyn. Ursa, what are you doing here? A friend brought me, she said. You're traveling together? Yes. It wasn't unheard of for a clone to pair up with a droid, but it was unusual. Clones were more comfortable with their own kind when they were on the move. Or on the run. Is there somewhere we can talk? she asked. I have some private booths down below. She followed Mick down a wide stairwell into the carpeted, dimly lit basement. The booths were largely empty, aside from a couple immersed in a drug cloud and a Series C clone savoring the jiggling quiver of an induced seizure. Raising his hand above his head, Mick dragged a floating orb of light toward the booth in the darkest corner. He softened the orb's output as Inga slid in next to him, and then he switched on the booth's magnetic privacy shield. I still have the data dot you gave me, she said. He'd forgotten about that, the backup dot full of pictures, videos, and posts from his married life. Ursa had uploaded it to herself to fill out what she knew about Inga. How about this friend of yours? Is he a short-timer? No. What did he do? She stared at the marbled pattern scrolling across the surface of the smart table. He's coming, she said. Following her gaze, Mick watched the Series D clone walk with a measured pace down the stairs. He was tall and thin, a shallow breather bred for life on Mars. But he looked at least fifteen years older than he was supposed to be. His black hair was tinged with gray. Couldn't find the guy you were looking for? Mick asked. The Series D sat next to Ursa. This is Mick, she explained, touching the clone's wristband to send him a message that unfurled in the audio implant behind his ear. Nice to meet you, Mick. You can call me Tyrellius. Mick hid his surprise. Tyrellius was the most notorious clone in the country. Rumor had it that he'd de-chipped thousands of clones and was preparing an army of resistance that would destroy the company's cloning operation. He'd had a hefty bounty on his head for more than a year. Mick owns the apocalypse, Ursa said. Tyrellius smiled. I suppose he knows the man we're here to meet. If you're talking about Kalimnik, the smuggler, 
you're out of luck, Mick replied. Why do you say that? He was murdered, upstairs, about twenty minutes ago. That's unfortunate. Do you know who did it? Mick nodded. A clone, like yourself. Tyrellius hesitated. I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but since Ursa here believes that you might be able to help us... Kalimnik was our ticket across the border, the clone explained. So I figured, Mick said. Won't be easy to get you across that border, given that you're a wanted man. Wanted for the wrong reason. You could say that. If you were convinced that clones have the same right as the rest of us. Don't they? Ursa asked. Mick glanced at Ursa. I run a pleasure palace. I'm no philosopher. I bet you would feel differently if you were a clone, she replied. Maybe I would. Tyrellius flicked his wrist, casting a round screen onto the smart table. If you're interested in helping us, you can reach me through this party. If you're not, I won't hold it against you. Mick watched the contact disc drift toward his sleeve. The clone got up to go. I hope we'll meet again, Ursa said, lowering her voice. So do I. She tapped the smart table with her long, thin fingers as she slid out of the booth. Mick waited until the couple was gone to decode the message she'd left behind, which was short and to the point. She was coming back to see him later that night, and she was coming alone. The apocalypse cleared out after one, The sickly sweet vapors of diluted drugs dissipated, giving way to the sour bite of spilled beer. The drunkest of the remaining clones tried to hassle Mick's bartender, a legless droid who was bolted to a sliding rail behind the bar, and got himself banned from the club, but the rest of them slipped out quietly, many of them with their heads down or their hands in their pockets. When the last one was gone, a company drone zipped through the security loop to do its nightly sweep floating from floor to floor to look for clones past their due dates who might be hiding in the club. The sex droids started their cleaning cycles. The doors closed at two. Mick allowed himself a single finger of old-fashioned bourbon, ignoring the pleas of his bartender, Jax, who was always trying to keep him on the straight and narrow. Then he programmed the loop to let in the droid he was waiting for, said goodnight to his staff, and went up to his room on the third floor. He tried to distract himself with the usual business of the day, but he couldn't focus on the bills that needed to be paid, and he found himself craving another drink. He took a shower instead, letting the warm jets pound his shoulders. He heard the door open while he was drying off. She was waiting for him when he emerged from the bathroom. Hello, Mick. She was wearing a simple black dress and a smile that made him feel like a younger man. A chill pricked his bare chest when he realized that she was speaking in his wife's voice, a voice that was brighter and breezier than Ursa's. Hello, Inga, he said. Dimming the lights, he led her to his bed, where he began to undress her. When she kissed him, he felt a pleasurable thrill that seemed to lift him into the air. Talk to me, he whispered. 
Talk to me about us. She began to describe the life he'd lived with Inga in Brooklyn. Remembering their weekend walks through Prospect Park, spring picnics, summer games on the green grass, and the colors of fall. You scolded me for feeding the squirrels, she said, laughing softly. Yes, he answered, kissing her again. Go on. She explored the old neighborhood, lingering at the trendy cafe where they often met for coffee. While he kissed her, she recalled the friends that they met at that cafe on Sunday mornings, and as she continued to resurrect the life that he'd led with his wife, the mistakes of the past seemed to dissolve and disappear. When they'd finished making love, he wasn't surprised to hear her say that she'd missed him. He believed it, just as he believed that his feelings for the droid were genuine, unimpeachable, and impervious to the passing of time. When Mick woke up, she was gathering her clothes under a narrow cone of light. She looked marvelous, even if she was made of circuits and silicone, and he propped himself up on his elbows to get a better look at her while she was getting dressed. How did you wind up with Tyrellius? He was sick, she answered, fixing the clasp of her bra. He needed help, and I helped him. How, exactly? He'd tried to remove his own chip. The wound became infected, and the infection spread to the rest of his body. When he was well enough, I finished what he'd started. Mick swung his legs out of bed. The sky was smeared with a premonition of dawn. And you've been de-chipping his friends ever since, he said. She stepped into her dress. Clones are incapable of removing the chips by themselves, she said. Yeah, I know. There's a reason for that. Stepping out of the spotlight thrown down by the floating orb, she joined him on the bed, drawing his hands into hers. We're setting them free, Mick. Without those chips, they can't be tracked. And if they can't be tracked, they can't be forced to work in the moon mines or in the Mars colonies. They don't have the right to be free. They belong to the company. Yes, but as children, they play, they go to school, they have families, foster families. As they get older, they dream of falling in love, of being able to do what they want, not what the company tells them to do. Is that so much to ask? They aren't human, Mick said. They're engineered to mature in half the time a normal person does. That's why Tyrellius has gone gray. He hasn't been taking in the drug that keeps a clone's metabolism in check when he turns sixteen. She raised her hand to caress his hair. They want the same things you do, Mick. He thought of the apocalypse, and of the clones who were the source of most of the club's revenue. There were times when he sympathized with them, when the resentment smoldering in their ubiquitous brown eyes gave him a reason to comp their drinks, or grant them an extra hour with one of his sex droids. But he had problems of his own. Edging closer to him, she nuzzled his neck with her soft, plump lips. When she spoke again, her voice had changed. She was Inga once again. Will you help us? she asked. I need to see Tyrellius first. She kissed him one last time, stood up, and started for the door. 
As she walked away, it was easy for him to pretend that she was a real woman. A woman who had real feelings for him. But when the door closed behind her, the light that had tuned itself to her presence extinguished itself, and darkness swirled back into the room. Mick was eating breakfast in the kitchen when the marshal called. Because Mick had left his wristband upstairs and was wearing a cheap shirt, a dumb blend of fabrics with a limited set of features, the call screen slid down the fridge and reappeared on top of the smart table, where it distorted itself to match Mick's perspective. What's the news? Mick asked. A wicked grin cocked the marshal's mouth. That clone made a mess of your club turned himself in. Mick set his fork down. Did you run his chip? Of course I did. He used the one. Cracked his ankle up, too. Marshall sighed, blinking his bloodshot eyes. Makes this deal tougher to set up. How much tougher? Fifty thousand is the best I can do. I've got your ten on hold here, and I know you're good for the rest. You'll need another five to get started. Fifty thousand is three months' take, Mick said. I'd do better by you if I could, but that's the way it is. Mick's breakfast boiled in his stomach. He had less than twenty thousand on hand. To come up with the other twenty, he'd have to sell one of his sex droids, which would cut into his profits and put the club on dangerously uneven footing. I'll have to check my books, but I'll let you know as soon as I can. Just remember, we're on a tight schedule. Not a lot of time to get this done. All right. By the way, this clone showed up without the smuggler's gun. You wouldn't know something about that, would you? Not a thing. Mick swept his hand over the table to kill the screen and swigged down what was left of his coffee. Mary ate, the more able-bodied of his two service droids came in to clean the table as he made his way through the back door. Torn clouds tumbled across the blue sky, but he knew it wouldn't rain. He pulled his single-engine hopper out of the shed behind the apocalypse. A breeze rustled the pines as he climbed inside. Disengaging the automatic controls and location services, he set the hopper to hover to save the charge and steered away from the club's gravel lot aiming for a narrow, unpaved path that the smugglers knew by heart. He kept his eyes open for drones while the hopper hugged the hardened curves. When he came out on an open field dotted with cactus and tufts of yellowed grass, he spotted a company carrier lumbering along at low altitude and checked his speed for a moment. But the vessel was heading south. Accelerating, he jumped a dry riverbed filled with the splintered remains of a wooden bridge, and rose an extra ten feet in the air as he struck a stretch of cracked asphalt. At the top of a low hill, an ancient billboard covered with graffiti marked the edge of the slum settlement that belonged to the clones. The settlement was where the clones who were old enough to work waited for their numbers to get called. Run-down stucco houses and tin lean-tos girded by heaps of trash littered the landscape. Wheelbarrows that parceled out the rations airdropped by the company's drones stood ready beside the footpaths that connected one derelict dwelling to another. 
Mick parked his hopper beside a squat hut slathered with bold red paint and got out with his hands up. A pair of Series D clones came out to meet him. After they'd patted him down, they slipped a blindfold over his eyes, spun him around several times, and made him sit in one of the wheelbarrows. The fetid smell of sewage stung his nose while they pushed him over one of the paths. When the wheelbarrow stopped moving, the clones led him into a cool building with a hard floor and told him to stand still while they moved something heavy to one side. He listened to them open a door with squeaking hinges. Go slowly, one of them mumbled. He took the clone's advice, keeping his hand on a dirt wall to steady himself. When he reached the bottom of the stairs, the blindfold was removed, and he found himself standing in a long, narrow space. Camping lanterns were hung from the wooden beams that supported the ceiling. Tyrellius was sitting on a folding chair next to a cot covered with bedding. He gestured for Mick to sit down, pointing amiably at a wooden bench as Mick's escorts retreated from the room. "'Welcome to my humble hideaway,' Tyrellius said. Mick sat down, folded his hands together, and gave Tyrellius a cold, hard stare. "'Well,' he started, "'here's the deal.' You're too big a fish for the smugglers who play a fair game. They won't risk carrying you. The others, and there are three who are willing, can't be trusted. I'll turn you over as soon as you're buckled in. Crow's feet appeared around Tyrellius's eyes as he smiled. So you've come with an offer of your own, he said. What do you propose? Thirty-five thousand to rent a quadcopter which includes insurance against us getting stopped before we reach the border. You've flown one before? I have. Just the thirty-five? Is that all? No, it isn't. I also want your droid. Ursa? She's not for sale. Doesn't matter. Thirty-five plus your droid. That's my price. But you'd be lucky to get fifteen for her on the open market. And how many of your clients would want to sleep with a droid as old as she is? Mick leaned forward, setting his elbows on his knees. I'm not going to sell her, and I won't put her to work. I want her for myself. Tyrellius rubbed the back of his neck. Standing up, he paced the length of the dugout, avoiding a wooden beam that blocked his path. So we have something in common, he said, laughing softly as he turned around. Strange that an artificial being such as herself, a thing that can't feel what we feel, could be the saving grace of not one, but two men. He paused, pursing his lips. Clones are raised to believe that they're soulless, like animals, you know. Ursa gave me more than a second chance, Mick. She provided the means for me to achieve my own salvation. To save myself through her. You could say that she was a substitute for that salvation, a kind of proxy. Maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense to you. Maybe it's hard to understand, since you're an ordinary man. But I wouldn't be the same person without her. I can't give her up. I won't. Then you'd better get used to this hole in the ground. Mick said. 
Tyrellius crossed the room. His eyes had become warm and wistful in the scattered light. But there's a price on her head as well, he replied. Would you condemn the two of us just because of your own selfishness? I might. Even in the half-light, Mick could see how certain of himself he was, how stubbornly he would fight for what he wanted. I can do a hundred thousand, with fifty up front, Terelius said. And I'll download whatever part of Ursa you're interested in onto a data dot that you can upload to one of your own droids. That's not good enough, Mick said. As he started for the stairs, the clones who'd brought him over came back down. The one in the lead was carrying a baseball bat. There will be none of that, Tyrellia said sternly. Send him safely on his way. The pair nodded numbly. They worked in silence as they blindfolded Mick and led him up the steps. But he could hear them cursing his name and his club in bitter whispers while they pushed the wheelbarrow over a flat, rocky path. When they dumped Mick out beside the red house... They focused their furious stares at him and spat at the tall grass near his feet. Don't come back, one of them muttered. He was a younger, angrier version of Tyrellius, destined to die someday on Mars. The club was open when Mick got back. As soon as he went upstairs, he lost his temper with Sin 7, his top performer because the purple-haired beauty had accidentally reset her skin-paint routine to its factory defaults, sheathing her naked body in kitschy, poorly-animated dragon tattoos. He spent the better part of an hour restoring the complex pattern he designed for her the year before. When he finished, he walked over to the bar to get himself a drink. "'It's early,' Jack said. "'Shouldn't you eat something first, boss?' "'Shut up, you hunk of junk, and pour me a bourbon.' The droid slid down the bar to retrieve a half-empty bottle, poured a finger of liquid into a short glass, and slid back to Mick to place the glass gingerly on the counter. "'Want to talk about it?' the droid asked. "'I told you to stop doing that!' Mick snapped. "'Okay. Sorry, boss.' Mick tossed back the bourbon on his way to the basement, where he sealed himself in one of the booths and called the marshal, who was slack-jawed as if he'd just woken up. What's the clone's story? Mick asked. It says he was attacked by that smuggler, who threatened to shoot him. The gun changed hands when they were struggling, and somehow it just happened to go off. You know that's not what happened. Doesn't matter, the marshal croaked. He's in my custody now, and that's how we'll play it if you can't come up with the cash. Mick pushed a lock of his hair back from his forehead. I need some more time to raise the rest of it. You got twenty-four hours. After that, I start filing the reports. Mick switched off the shield and tapped his table to order another drink. Sin 7 arrived a moment later with a freshly filled glass. She was dressed in glowing green stockings and a black bodice that looped through one of Mick's favorite films, a movie he'd seen many times with Inga, his wife. Downing the bourbon... He asked her to bring him another one. Jack says you shouldn't have any more, she said. 
Tell Jax to mind his own business. He wondered if the clones who had slept with her thought of her pretty face while they were sitting on the launch pad, waiting to be blasted into space. The question made him feel sorry for them, and he was ashamed of himself as he watched her walk away. He came to on the sofa in his bedroom. His head didn't hurt, but his mouth was full of cotton. When he sat up, the walls suddenly shifted, which made him worry that he was going to be sick. You should know better, getting drunk at your age. For an instant, Mick saw his wife's face instead of the droid's. The real Inga's finely etched eyebrows, freckled cheeks, and blunt nose but the illusion was shattered by the harsh light of the lighting orb that followed Ursa across the room. "'What time is it?' he asked. "'Almost midnight. Open up.' She popped a pill in his mouth and pressed a glass of water into his hand. He drank as much of it as he could and stood up. "'Coffee?' he asked. "'It's coming.' He dimmed the light from the orb and waved it away. I wish Tyrellius would have left you out of this, he said. He couldn't. We're partners, Mick. Then he should be here. Why isn't he? Because he doesn't know. I wanted to make you understand on my own. I understand everything, perfectly. Do you? Do you know that you're still a sick man after all these years? The door opened. Mary Eight came in with the coffee. Where do you want it, Chief? Leave it on the desk. As the door closed, Ursa pressed her hand against Mick's shoulder, urging him to sit back down. She brought the cup and saucer to him and joined him on the sofa as he took several sips. Then she placed the saucer on a cluttered end table and put her hand on his knee. Where was your wife when the bomb fell, Nick? She was at work, in Manhattan, he said. Where did Inga work? At a hospital. She was a nurse. It seemed like an odd thing to say out loud. After so many years of reconstructing the life he'd shared with Inga, the person she was when they were apart had faded in his memory, becoming a pale shadow of the woman he remembered. I'm doing what I do because of her. Not because of Tyrellius, and not because of you, Ursa explained. What was in the past has to stay in the past, Mick. You'll have to live without it, because I can't stay here. I won't. She kissed him, and her kiss burned away the last wisps of the alcoholic fog that had clouded his mind. Then she got up to go, closing the door softly behind her as she left. The craving for another drink tapped at the back of Mick's throat, pestering him like a spurned friend while he thought about what Ursa had told him. He knew that she was right about the past, and he could feel himself weighing his own desire against the compulsion she had to help Tyrellius and the other clones. Maybe she was right about them as well. Maybe it was time for Mick to admit that he'd been preying on them, using them the way he used the droids he'd bought and programmed. He remembered what Tyrellius had told him about the clones being soulless, 
and how he described Ursa in almost spiritual terms as a means of achieving the salvation that was beyond his grasp. Maybe it was time to let her go. To really let her go. But they still needed his help, and he had the marshal on his back, and the smuggler who'd been killed by a clone in his club. He would have to do it his way, on his terms. Otherwise he'd be no help at all, even to himself. Curling his fingers, he slipped a screen into his palm. The marshal was eager to talk to Mick. Greed glittered in his black eyes at the mention of a new deal. It was just after 10.30 in the morning when Tyrellius and Ursa arrived at the Apocalypse. The club was closed. Mick had confined his droids to their quarters. Tyrellius smiled at him when they reached the center of the simply lit floor. I'm glad to have you on our side, he said. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, Mick replied. There's one more thing I have to take care of before we go. Excuse me. He went downstairs with his hands stuffed in the pockets of his jacket, but he stopped before he reached the basement, making sure that he couldn't see Tyrellius or be seen by him. He leaned against the carpeted wall and tapped his wristband to send the marshal, who was hidden upstairs, a message. Mick had told him, the night before, that there would be a $60,000 bounty waiting for him at the club if he brought along the C-Series clone who had turned himself in. A moment later, an outburst echoed through the empty room. "'Stay where you are, Tyrellius!' the marshal shouted. Listening to the Marshal and the Series C come down from the second-story landing, Mick counted the seconds to gauge their progress as they crossed the floor. When the Marshal spoke again, addressing Ursa, Mick bolted up the stairs and sprinted towards the pear-shaped lawman, who was guiding a handcuffed Series C clone toward Tyrellius. Mick closed the distance between them just as the Series C was beginning to turn around, jamming the smuggler's gun into the Marshal's back. He wrenched the fat man's weapon from his thick fingers before the lawman knew what was happening. Mick! he gasped. What are you doing? Uncuff the clone. Are you crazy? You can't double-cross me! I don't want to shoot you, Marshal, but I will if I have to. The Marshal slid his wristband over the cuffs, which popped open and fell to the ground. Move over there. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mick said, gesturing at the Series C. Scared and confused, the clone moved cautiously positioning himself halfway between Mick and Torellius. Torellius, come here and take the marshal's gun. Mick, do it. Torellius circled around the marshal to take the second weapon from Mick. Go stand behind your buddy, Mick said. I thought you were helping, Mick. I am. Gun in hand, Torellius joined the Series C, standing a few feet behind the other clone. Slipping a screen into his palm, Mick launched it with a determined flick of his wrist and tugged it with a second motion to project it in the air above their heads. Then he expanded the screen with a voice command, making the image easy for everyone to see. So you're innocent, he asked the Series C. Is that your story? The video playing on the suspended screen showed the Series C punching the smuggler, a heavyset man with a trimmed beard while the smuggler's back was turned. When the other man was down, the clone took the smuggler's holstered gun. Yelling something that was garbled by the noise of the club, the Series C aimed the gun and fired it twice. Then he dropped the weapon and ran out of the frame. Disposing of the screen, Mick looked sideways at Terelius. After he ran off, he turned himself in to make a deal with the marshal, who was going to take me for fifty thousand. That's crazy, Mick, the marshal stammered. Shut up, Mick said. Torellius, you seem to think that clones have the same rights as men. Let's see if you can prove it. What do you want me to do? Show me what you would do to a man who kills another man. Torellius quickly glanced at Ursa. What about the marshal? he asked. Mick patted the side pocket of his jacket. I brought along a neural scrambler. He won't remember anything that's happened in the last two days. The marshal stiffened. That'll only make things worse for you, Mick. The company's gonna lean on you. Lean on you hard. I don't give a damn if they do. The company's not gonna push me around anymore. The sound of whirring propellers told him that the empty quadcopter he'd rented was starting its landing sequence outside. Shifting his grip on the gun he was holding, Mick noticed the familiar look of determination that had settled in Tyrellius's eyes. At the same time, he saw the series seize clenched fists and realized that the fugitive was making eye contact with the marshal, who signaled back with a nearly imperceptible nod of his bulbous head. Then the series C spun around, socking Tyrellius in the jaw. The gun between them went off, spitting out a bullet that ricocheted against the ceiling, 
and suddenly the clones were on the ground. The marshal fumbled with his hands, trying desperately to get his pistol back from Mick. But Mick was too fast for him. He struck the marshal with the butt of his own gun, gave him a solid push, and hit him again in the back of the head, knocking out the fat man. Ursa was beside the limb-locked clones, trying to pull them apart. Get back! Mick shouted. Another shot exploded from the gun. Ursa dropped to her knees. Mick grabbed the Series C and pulled him off of Tyrellius, whose chest was covered with blood and black powder. Forgive me, Tyrellius whispered. Forgive me, brother. His face was swollen and bleeding, but he was able to stand up with Mick and Ursa's help. The other clone was dead. Taking the gun from Tyrellius, Mick wiped it down and left it next to the dead man. He returned the other weapon to its original owner, the Marshal, who was sleeping peacefully on the floor. Hold his head still, just in case. Ursa held the Marshal while Mick adjusted the Scrambler's flexible wand and pressed it against the Marshal's temple. A minute later, the scramble was complete, and the three of them started for the door. As he was leaving, Mick took a last look at the second-floor landing, the holographic projectors that circled the ceiling, and Jax, the lifeless droid bolted to the bar. He couldn't say yet whether he would miss the apocalypse, but he knew that he wouldn't see it again. He'd made up his mind the night before that it was time to say goodbye. Outside, the idling engines of the quadcopter hummed under the spacious dome of a bright blue sky. Watching Ursa walk hand in hand with the clone who had given her life purpose, Mick remembered the night they'd spent together and wondered whether she would carry on the crusade after Tyrellius expired. Part of him hoped that she would, and it wasn't hard for him to imagine an older version of himself joining the fight. Buckling the two of them into the hold, Mick climbed into the cockpit and set the quadcopter's controls to manual. With his thoughts locked on the safety of his two passengers, he drove the quad into the air, rising above the shallow hills of the territory once known as New Mexico, to set his sights on a country he'd never seen. He was finished with the past. He was finally free. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Chad's. Chad, thank you, sir. It is an honor. Thank you, indeed. And, 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 indeed. And, hey, we know each other there now. And, honestly, thank you, indeed. Hey, honestly, amazing. Thank you. So, yes, it's been, apparently it's been a very busy month for Mr. J.J. Campanella in day life and day, in day jobs and day work, but he's done he's done science news for the, it's the end of the month. Jim, sir, it is an honour to play this. Greetings and quigomatophilations, my ergophasic listeners, and welcome to this September 2019 Science News Update. I'm your host for this perennially censorific podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, let's start out this lovely autumnal podcast with idiot pseudoscientists of the month. These moronic biohackers can hardly be called scientists as far as I'm concerned. This info is from an article by staff writer Daniel Oberhaus in Wired Magazine. And some of you may have read it, but I suspect not that many. The newest trend in biohacking is to insert computer components into your bodies. What components? Well, 
essentially microservers. Where? Well, pretty much anywhere where they'll fit. Biohacker Jeff Tabitz has a do-it-yourself operating room in his garage in California. He'll implant whatever electronic widget you want into your body, including the wireless key fob for your Tesla, if you are so inclined, or shall I say lazy, or paranoid enough to think you'll lose your car keys. Tibbet's latest surgery is on Michael Lawfer, the self-proclaimed anarcho-biohacker who has had an implantable device called the peg leg inserted into, uh, well, into his leg. Peg leg is a wireless router and hard drive, all rolled into one tiny little package. Laufer and his small group of biohackers created it using less than $50 of hardware. It's a little bigger than a pack of gum, and once it's implanted into your body, it turns you into a node of a local mesh network. Any Wi-Fi-enabled device can access the device's network, and the implant can also mesh with other peg legs to create what is effectively an Internet of Legs. I like that, by the way. That's a quote from the guy who wrote the paper, Oberhaus, an Internet of Legs. Peg leg doesn't connect to the Internet backbone that you're using to listen to this article, if you're listening to it online. Instead, it creates a local wireless network that anybody in the same room can access. The implant can store hundreds of gigabytes of data, stream movies, music, whatever, and act as a server for an anonymous chat room or forum and smuggle encrypted files across international borders. Pegleg was designed so that anyone who connects to the device's network can upload or download files to the hard drive anonymously. Of course, this sort of demented openness raises a whole bunch of legal questions about who's responsible for the data stored in somebody's body. Frankly, I think this is a bit on the insane side. Let's risk infection, gangrene, and potentially lose a limb so that we can carry around bootleg copies of the Justice League, or maybe Aquaman, in our bodies. It's like little kids who decide they want to play at being Johnny Mnemonic, if little kids played at being Johnny Mnemonic. For my audience not versed in classic science fiction, Johnny Mnemonic, the short story, not the less-than-stellar movie, was written by William Gibson. It tells the story of a courier who basically has a flash drive in his head and will carry your secret information across borders. And he doesn't even know what the information may be. Laufer says, quote, Gibson had a big influence on me and the creation of Pegleg. To see technology progress in ways that Gibson predicted with a lot of fidelity is really cool. The only thing better is to be the ones bringing it into existence with this device. Unquote. Besides the physical issue and the question of whether a sane person needs one of these at all, are the legal ramifications that I just mentioned a little bit ago, and the author does talk about this in the article. Given that anybody can upload files to the peg leg when it's turned on because it's an open network, and it's impossible to tell who uploaded a given file, it's easy to claim ignorance of its contents. But what happens if illegal material shows up on your peg leg, like classified government documents or child porn? Would the person with the implant be protected under the Communications Decency Act 
which doesn't hold online platforms or internet service providers liable for the content that users post on their sites? Or would the individual be considered to be in possession of those materials and subject to the relevant punishments? Well, this hasn't come up yet. And apparently, Laufer is not concerned at all about these things and is just happy to keep playing Johnny Mnemonic and be ignorant of all the dangers of what he might be carrying in that leg of his. Let's continue the next story with something near and dear to everyone's heart. Cannabis? Once again, this story is going to point out that cannabis is not as benign as everyone insists it is. Also, let's see how many people stop using cannabis as opposed to stop getting vaccinations. Anyway, according to Duke University scientist Dr. Susan Murphy, fathers who use marijuana may be using it for two. The story was published in the August issue of the journal Epigenetics. Although the study was small, with about 25 men and 15 rats, it highlights a potential transgenerational effect of marijuana exposure. The passing on of sperm in which an autism-associated gene, DLGAP2, has accumulated extra epigenetic markings. I'll explain what that means in a second. Murphy identified significant hypomethylation at the DLGAP2 gene in the sperm of men who used marijuana compared to controls. Now, what does that mean? Hypomethylation, which means that there are fewer methyl groups, which is a chemical. It means usually that a gene is being turned on and activated to start making a protein, as opposed to the opposite. If you have too many of these methyl groups stuck to the DNA, it usually turns off the DNA. Well, hypomethylation tends to turn a gene on. So a similar observation was made in the sperm of rats exposed to THC compared to controls. This hypomethylated state was also detected in the frontal region of brains of rats born to fathers exposed to THC. Murphy says, quote, Our findings do not establish a definitive link between cannabis use and autism, but the possible connection warrants further urgent study. Given efforts throughout the country to legalize marijuana for recreational and or medicinal uses. DLGAP is a gene involved in synaptic organization of the brain and neuronal signaling, and it has been strongly implicated in autism. In earlier work, the researchers noted several gene alterations in the sperm of men who smoke marijuana. The current study honed in on the specific genes, notably DLGAP. Besides being strongly implicated in autism, the gene is also associated with schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder. Other findings from the current study include a sex-based difference in the relationship between DNA methylation and gene expression in human brain tissues. In both male and female brain tissues, increased DNA methylation was associated with decreased gene activity, as I said earlier. This relationship was strongest in females and seemed to be less well-maintained in males, though the reason for this isn't known at this time. This anomaly was notable because the ratio of boys to girls with autism is 4 to 1, and there are sex differences in the neural behavioral symptoms. Murphy notes, quote, 
It's possible that the relationship between methylation and expression is modified if the methylation change that we see in sperm is inherited by the offspring. In any event, it's clear that the region of DNA methylation within the DLGAP gene that is altered in association with cannabis use is functionally important in the brain. Given marijuana's increasing prevalence of use in the U.S. and the increasing number of states that have legalized it, we need more studies to understand how this drug is affecting not only those who smoke it, but their unborn children as well. Unquote. Next story. How many years of life does a big brain cost? Dr. Alexander Kottershaw of Stockholm University has decided to examine whether the energy needed to grow a big brain reduces your lifespan. He reports on this in the August volume of the journal Biological Letters. What are the two things that you need to stay alive as an animal in the wild? Well, it pretty much comes down to two factors. Make sure you have food and avoid being snatched by a predator. Having a big brain might help because big-brained animals tend to be smarter and are able to solve life-threatening problems that might otherwise cause an early death. It is therefore logical to assume that over generations of being able to outsmart external causes of mortality, such as predation, animals with bigger brains will evolve to age more slowly. There's a problem with this, though. There's a contradictory theory that lurks behind this logical relationship. Brain tissue is the most energetically expensive tissue in the body. Growing a big brain means that animals have to divert energy and resources away from other bodily processes like growing, reproduction, tissue repair. So according to this theory, it would be logical to assume that animals with big brains or bigger brains should actually age faster since they're unable to maintain and repair their bodies over time. Cottershall studied aging in a line of artificially selected guppies. These fish were selected over four generations to either have large or small brains. And this resulted in a 12% difference in the relative brain size by the fourth generation. The researchers raised the guppies from birth in a safe environment where they always had access to food and there was no threat from predation. This gentle rearing environment, therefore, removed any external causes of mortality. The guppies were even kept in individual tanks to avoid any competition or aggression among the fish. But they could still see each other so they wouldn't get lonely. Then the team monitored the guppies over their entire lifespan to reveal that the big-brained fish had a 22% shorter lifespan than the small-brained fish. Okay. Large-brained fish live for an average of 2.9 years, while small-brained fish lived for 3.5 years. The study took some time for the researchers because the longest-lived small-brained fish was over five years old when it died. Their findings support the idea that larger brains are costly and there is a trade-off with aging. The big-brained guppies in the study were likely reallocating their bodily resources to brain growth. There's already some support for this notion because the team had previously found that these large-brained guppies also have smaller digestive tracts and poor immune systems. Cottershall's experiment is one of the first to show how aging is affected by brain size. While big brains appear to be quite bad for longevity, the cost of about 0.6 years, 
at least for the guppies, that was a quarter of their lifespan. The team also highlights that their findings are restricted to a benign and protected environment. More work is now needed to understand how brain size and aging interact with external causes of mortality, like predation and starvation, which could also affect animal survival. Upwards and onwards, maybe backwards and downwards in this case, depending on your point of view, let's talk about the human microbiome for the umpteenth time. So, findings in the journal Cell Host and Microbe last month suggest that the human mouth and gut microbiomes comprise, quote-unquote, staggering microbial genetic diversity and... It was found that at least half of all the genes identified were unique to an individual. An analysis of microbial genes in the human gut and oral microbiomes has yielded results suggesting that the collective microbiome may contain more genes than there are stars in the observable universe. Dr. Alex Kostick's research group at Harvard has generated a catalog and searchable web resource detailing tens of millions of microbial genes identified through their first sweep analysis of thousands of human samples. The Harvard study represents only the start of efforts to analyze the genes contained in the entire human microbiome. The results suggest that at least half of the genes are unique to each individual, and the apparent diversity is exceeding the researchers' expectations. The paper indicates that the human gut microbiome may contain upwards of 150,000 different microbial strains, and that even minute variations in the microbiome composition can impact human health and disease. Kostick points out, quote, The field still does not have a grasp on the scope of the microbiome's genetic content, in the gut and otherwise. This is a question crucial for understanding microbial function in the context of disease, unquote. He also states that, quote, you may ask what the point of a study like this is, but building a catalog of the complete landscape of microbial genes could help to direct the design and development of precision treatments. Even the microbiomes between twins seem to be unique. Narrowly targeted therapies would be based on the unique microbial genetic makeup of a person rather than on bacterial type alone, unquote. So scientists can only estimate the total number of genetic elements within every bacterial species. And theoretical approximations start at perhaps conservative one billion genes. They state that within the human gut microbiome, up to 10 million non-redundant genes have been previously identified by major sequencing consortiums. Kostick's group says this is an underestimation by at least a couple of orders of magnitude. In total, his group assessed DNA of some 3,500 human microbiome samples, of which more than 1,400 were obtained from people's mouths and about 2,000 from people's guts. Their initial analyses identified nearly 46 million genes in total. They found staggering genetic heterogeneity in that data, identifying a total of 45,666,334 non-redundant genes. More than half of those genes were found in only one sample, and so were unique to that individual. 
the researchers termed these genes singletons. As to how many genes there are in the collective human microbiome, one calculation puts that figure at around 232 million, whereas another calculation resulted in a number comparable to the number of atoms in the universe. Perhaps the bottom line is that the actual number may be something that we can't even find out. Caustic says, quote, whatever it may be, we hope that our catalog, along with a searchable web application, will have many practical uses and see many directions of research in the field of host-microbe relationships, unquote. Next story. Can gray seals act like parrots? Well, yes. Yes, they can. Have you ever wondered which animals learn to communicate with sounds and how? We can precisely control our vocal tracks and vocal cords when learning new sounds. But the capacity for vocal learning is rare in nature. Fewer than a hundred attested species with only about a dozen animals are capable of learning how to produce sounds for communication. For example, cats, dogs, and chimps can't learn vocalizations. Doctors Amanda Stansbury and Vincent Yannick from the University of St. Andrews tested whether gray seals, of all things, can be trained to learn new sounds by imitation. The researchers trained a gray seal named Zola to copy three sounds played through a loudspeaker. To make the task easier for Zola, these sounds were recordings of her own calls, which had been shifted around in frequency to sound higher or lower. Every time Zola reproduced one of the sounds at the correct pitch, she received a fish reward. After training, Zola could copy sequences of up to 10 sounds varying in pitch, most of which she had not heard before. However, when the team analyzed the audio recordings, they discovered that instead of modifying the vibration of her vocal cords, like humans do when singing, Zola was altering the shape of her vocal tract, similar to the way we change the shape of our mouths when going from bath to boot. She could even imitate musical motifs like the Star Wars theme and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. So Zola, the singing seal, could imitate tunes by performing vocal tract movements that we humans usually make when speaking. So let's, let's listen to a recording of Zola. So first, you'll hear the synthesized guide noise for the seal, and then that'll be followed by Zola imitating the guide noise. Okay, so we'll start with a simple Do-Re-Mi. Now... Let's hear Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And now for the grand finale. We'll probably hear this in the brand new movie coming out of Christmas, Rise of the Skywalker, the Star Wars theme. Stansbury and Yannick 
then trained two more seals, Janus and Gandalf, to imitate five vowel sounds similar to those found in British English. Bath, may, meet, thought, boot, to assess the animal's ability to control their vocal cords. Eventually, both seals could reliably imitate the five vowels by emphasizing either the lower or higher frequencies. The seals had changed their voices to sound deeper, as in boot, or more acute, as in meat, so that they no longer sounded like other seals. They had learned how to produce new sounds instead of recycling sounds they could already produce. So why is this lolcat-type story scientifically interesting? Well, Stansbury and Yannick provide experimental evidence that it is possible for some animals other than humans to learn to produce new sounds via modifications of their vocal tracks. This is something we humans do constantly when learning our mother tongues or a new language. Currently, many researchers study birdsong production to help us understand human speech. But here we have a much closer relative with seals and their human-like vocal tracks, and it could be a perfect alternative model species for learning about human speech and song thanks to our similar anatomy. In addition, it's possible to measure the brain activity of seals, potentially allowing us to identify which areas of the brain that the seals are using for vocal limitation. In brief, seals have much to teach us about human speech and song, and you will soon be able to download songs of the sea with choruses of seals, dolphins, and whales. Whales definitely singing bass. I mean, bass. All right, ladies and germs, the final story of the night. Is there a gay gene? Probably not from the looks of it. Okay, so this is a question that's been around since about the time that the human genome was just beginning to be sequenced back in the mid-90s. Is there a gene whose mutation will make you gay? We could blame the concept of the gay gene on Dr. Dean Hamer, who linked homosexuality to a specific region of the X chromosome in a 1993 study. Hamer is a geneticist, author, and filmmaker, and he's known for his research on the role of genetics in sexual orientation and human behavior, as well as contributions to biotech and uh, HIV-AIDS prevention. Hamer is probably most famous for discovering the genetic roots of anxiety and finding a mutation in the promoter region of the gene for serotonin transport, which led to the widespread use of Prozac to help anxiety and depression in people with that particular mutation. Well, it turns out that as far as the gay gene was concerned, he was way off target. And frankly, I've thought his study of this question for the last several decades, right up until now, ranks with questions like, is there a gene that will make you a vegan? Is there a gene that will make you a Yankees fan? Is there a gene that causes you to be a Unitarian? Human genetics, and genetics in general, is way too darn complicated to simply say, Good morning, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes, we have finished the scan of your child's genome, and I have bad news. He does have a mutation on a single gene of his X chromosome. I hesitate to say this, but I know you're from New York City and are loyal fans of the Jets, but your son is destined to be a Dallas Cowboys fan. I really do share your sorrow. You get the idea. So, 
What about this new study? The study was performed by Dr. Benjamin Neal's research group at Harvard Medical School, and it was entitled, Large-Scale GWAS Reveals Insights into the Genetic Architecture of Same-Sex Sexual Behavior. This was published in the journal Science in August. Put simply, Neal found that a genome-wide analytic scan of the entire human genome pretty much puts to rest the notion of a single gay gene. Now, mind you, they did find that same-sex sexual behavior is linked to a contribution of, quote, many small genetic effects scattered across the genome, unquote. The Large Genome-Wide Association Study on 477,522 Individuals found five genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms, called SNPs, which are associated with engaging in same-sex sexual behavior. Uh, A single nucleotide polymorphism is an alteration of a single base in a sequence of DNA. As I told my introductory bio class last week, the larger the sample that you're looking at, the more believable the results. In this case, almost a half million people being analyzed is pretty darn convincing. Those 477,000 genomes came from a combination of a couple of places. The UK Biobank, 408,000 or so, with individuals who were age 40 to 70, and a cohort from 23andMe, of all places, of about 68,000, largely from the U.S. The primary phenotype examined was whether a person had sex, even one encounter, with somebody of the same sex. This information was taken from self-reported responses. UK Biobank participants were all asked, have you ever had sex with someone of the same sex? Whereas 23andMe participants filled out an entire sexual orientation survey that included questions about sexual identity, sexual attraction, sexual experience, and sexual fantasies. From there, Neil and his team analyzed other phenotypes, including if you had same-sex behavior, what proportion of your partners have been same-sex. The paper notes that the five genetic variants together account for less than 1% of the variation, and all genetic variants tested accounted for only 8 to 25% of variation in same-sex behavior. Some people may not be happy with those numbers. They suggest there is a 75 to 92% probability that gayness is caused by the environment and not genetics. Oops. However, Neil is quick to note that these numbers are about populations, not individuals. And he says, quote, it's not like an individual has a 20-80 split on the genetics and environment, and then the next person has a 30-70 split. That's simply not the way it works. Rather, these numbers are describing the variability in the population that we see in genetics and linking that variability to the variability we see in the trait, unquote. Despite that apparently small effect, this genetic variance of 8% to 25% could hint at some major biological pathways that may be involved in same-sex sexual behavior. For example, one genetic marker is in an area of the genome where genes 
are related to olfaction are located. And as smell and sexual attraction have been linked, that could lead to a tie to sexual behavior. But these hypotheses based on marker locations are nothing more than speculation. And how these five genetic variants and the rest of the genome contribute to same-sex sexual behavior will take many years to uncover. One worry about the study is that given the hazardous ways that society could potentially use results like this, is it wise to publish these standard identifiers for the five polymorphisms that they found? And Neil responds by asserting that it is quote-unquote effectively impossible to predict an individual's sexual behavior from their genome like this. He says, quote, genetics may be an important contributing factor, but it is less than half the story for sexual behavior. The information here is not enough to make a polygenetic risk score. In fact, we tried to perform a cross-prediction test in the study to see if we could use the factors to predict homosexuality, but we failed miserably. So if we could not succeed working backwards, no one else could or should either, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. Don't worry. I'm sure you were born that way. The next big trend will be keeping seals in your living room like parrots. Soon you'll be able to buy your own peg leg router on Amazon. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go. Like I say, fantastic. Jim, always an honor. Always. Just keep toiling away, lad. <laughs> Right, that that is the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Big thank you to Chad and to Anthony and Mr. JJ Campanella for providing the content. And big thank you to Jeremy and Gary as well for the behind the scenes, behind the scenes, and Lisa as well. <laughs> Let's get everyone in there. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
I'd be on my way If I could cast myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly I'm still building word by word and I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there out there by and by Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.